Um, but this is, at this point, this is where like the, the less faithful drop out, right? So yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me in Matthew part two is week two is when I dropped out, <laughs> but <laughs> back when there was only the morning one. So, um, the Lord provided through a, um, easier time for me. <laughs> well, if you've made it this far, congratulations. Um, you've passed the point that a lot of people haven't. And I just want to thank you. Um, dedication to this class, whether it be, um, you know, sitting down and sitting under the word taught or whether it be sitting down around other brothers and uh, studying the word um, or just to be learners. That's a that's a huge thing. Um, and I just want to say that um, not to get too like too sentimental or anything, but, you know, last night as I was leaving the, the Northbrook meeting, I just thought, man, it's been a pleasure over the last five years to to learn and to teach with you guys. And uh, Man, I just hope you all keep doing this thing. Um, I don't know why you'd go halfway through the book of Acts and then stop. So hopefully you all come back next semester, even if uh, I'm abandoning you. All right, uh, let's recap Acts so far. Jesus has left his witnesses with his Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. And he's empowered them to be on mission as his people. Persecution has been rising and situations between followers of Jesus and the powers that be have been escalating. We have seen conflict turn into warning, turn into beatings, turn into full-on martyrdom, and full-on imprisonment. The first church scandal involving Ananias and Sapphira didn't divide the church. The first martyrdom of the deacon Stephen didn't stomp out the church, and that's where we find ourselves now. Let's look at the setting for our text today. In Acts chapter 4, or Acts chapter 8, verse 4, we read this. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip uh, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now coming out of chapter 7, where we saw Stephen preach from the Old Testament against his accusers, remember the end of the passage after Stephen's murder, just before that, at the beginning of chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church and Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So the last time I taught a couple of weeks ago, uh, right before Matt taught last week over Acts 7, which was um, just such a great passage to go through, um, we talked about how the believers started doing door-to-door evangelism. And we almost see the exact opposite here. So the the believers have been doing door-to-door evangelism, and now Saul is taking people out of their houses door-to-door and almost doing like an anti-evangelism. So I want you guys to notice that. The backdrop, the setting, the scene, the driving force, whatever you want to call it here, for all that we're going to talk about today with Philip and the apostles and the eunuch and Simon is this. Persecution doesn't thwart God's gospel plan. God utilizes it for his purpose. If you're taking notes, that's something to write down. I'll say that one more time. Persecution doesn't thwart God's gospel plan. God utilizes it for his purpose. With God's mission and his plan on our minds, let's get in. Let's read verses 5 to 8. 
Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Specifically in this portion of the text, I want all of us to pay attention to one thing that will help us frame what is so important here. I want you to pay attention to place. In terms of place, we see that Philip heads to Samaria. If you're reading this as the original audience, this stops you in your tracks. The homework makes mention of this place and the cultural strife between the Jewish people and Samaria, and, and we've been given a little bit of that background um, in the past, but it's not just Samaria, but the city of Samaria. If you know some of your history and maybe some of your geography, you'll see why that is <coughs> peculiar. Samaria is more of a region than it is a city, and the text doesn't say a city in Samaria. It says the city of Samaria. A footnote in your Bible may point you to a possible translation that says a city, but for the time being, just trust me. Let me show you where Luke seems to be pointing us, but it's going to require um, a nice dive into the Old Testament. So, and the, and the reason why we're going to be jumping into the Old Testament for this is I want you to think of Luke-Acts, this two-part saga. I want you to think of it as another installment to God's story interacting with God's people. Almost think of it like a continuation of the story from the Old Testament, because that's what Luke is trying to do here. And in the Old Testament, there was a city named Samaria in the divided northern kingdom. So there was a time in which God's kingdom was divided between um, Judah and Israel. Herod renamed this city of Samaria about 80 years before the time of the writing of this section of Acts. But just like we know with Constantinople and Istanbul, we know the modern and the ancient name of that city and what people mean when they say one or the other. So too did Israel with the city of Samaria, which was renamed Sebast. So a recall to the old name would have pointed the Jewish people right back to the divided kingdom of God in the Old Testament. God directing Philip to go to the city of Samaria would have meant a lot in terms of Old Testament fulfillment. And we'll see this right here in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 21 to 23. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Here in Ezekiel 37, we can see what Luke is trying to get across to us. God's promise to Israel is that the once divided kingdom of Judah and Israel, southern and northern kingdoms, will be brought together. Luke says that the Samaritans paid attention to Philip's message with one accord. Sounds a lot like 
the believers in Acts 2 and the believers in Acts 4 in Jerusalem. They were unified. He says that their result of hearing the message of the gospel proclaimed was joy. And I want you to write that down. That's really important. He says that their result of hearing the message of the gospel proclaimed was joy. Genuine joy. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this next thing down. If not, just know that this is what I want you to log away in your brain. Philip's journey into Samaria to proclaim the gospel was so that Israel would be restored. I'll say that one more time. Philip's journey into Samaria to proclaim the gospel was so that Israel would be restored. King Jesus will not have a divided kingdom with two kings, but he will be worshiped as the one true king. Let's fast forward a bit through the initial part of Simon's story, starting in verse 9 down to, three, uh, th- down to 13. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was some, somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, Simon was amazed. I want you to pretend like you're Simon for a minute. You're a magician. And not an illusionist like our friend Grant Price, you know, tall hair, you know, but a sorcerer. Pretend like you're someone who harnesses and messes with and manipulates the demonic powers in this world to gain power and to gain status. Your magic wows the people of Samaria. And they call you someone great because of your abilities. And they even say your power comes from God. Then some guy named Philip from some movement called The Way comes into town and drives out the very powers that you were using to captivate the people. This guy literally drives away your livelihood as the people of your city believe in the message that Philip is teaching. I'm going to make a bold statement here, um, and I'm sticking my guns on it. If you disagree, I don't care. (laughs) Simon was a pretender. So if you're taking notes, that's really important. Simon was a pretender. He saw power slip from his grasp. And as an opportunistic manipulator, he took it. He was looking for an avenue for more power, and he found it. He looked upon Philip and the power that he wielded with amazement. Simon's belief looked like the belief of the Samaritans. Simon's baptism looked like the baptism of the Samaritans. But one thing separated them, joy. You see, the Samaritans are spoken of as rejoicing when they believe in Jesus. And in the next portion of the text, we'll see that the eunuch is described as joyful after he believes and is baptized. Luke is helping us to notice a certain omission here. The joy in the life of Simon the magician after his so-called conversion. He adds two extra details here. First, he followed Philip around. No one else followed Philip around after they believed. It was just Simon. 
And second, he was amazed at what? The signs and the wonders that Philip was doing. Let's read verse 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. We're covering a lot today, so I don't have any intention of spending too much time on that portion of the text. However, it's important to see what these verses are saying and what they're not saying. What we need to see is the parallel to Pentecost in Jerusalem in chapter 2. Many believed at Pentecost, and they were waiting for the Spirit to arrive, as Jesus had promised in chapter 1. What is happening here in verses 14 through 17 is very similar to Pentecost in Jerusalem. So much that we could maybe even call this the Samaritan Pentecost, sorta. What we do not need to see is that there's some continuing distinction between the time someone believes and when they receive the Holy Spirit. I want to emphasize that a lot because you can get into a lot of trouble Luke is showing that this situation in Pentecost in Jerusalem are developments in the story of God and his mission on earth through the spreading of the gospel. Do not take an exception and make it the rule. Luke wants you to see here that there's something odd about the fact that the Samaritans had not yet received the Holy Spirit. We're not to see this as normative, and that's one of the problems we see when people are interpreting through Acts all the time. If you think of a lot of um, the different theological errors in the church, a lot of them come from just reading Acts without its own context. So if someone tells you that you need to be anointed by an apostle today in order to receive the Holy Spirit in some special way, no. God is present with you right now, and he was giving Peter and John then the opportunity for Jerusalem and the apostles to witness what we talked about in verse 5. The kingdom of God is being fully restored in the conversion of Samaria. And the apostles were invited to witness this moment. That's really important for us to recognize. And here comes trouble. Verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. (laughs) We see Simon the pretender's true colors here. His joyless half-belief and wonderment with the seeming magic that Peter and John possess here to give this other spirit could be his too for a price. But learn from Peter's response how God handles those who attempt to manipulate him. Verses 20 to 23. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord. 
that nothing of what you have said will come upon me. Peter lets Simon know that Yahweh is not a God like the other spirits that he's able to control. Magic can't be done in the name of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit does not give share of his gospel ministry. Our triune God, he alone is in full and utter control of all things. And he will not be stopped by persecutors. He won't be stopped by pretenders. And he won't be stopped by power grabbers. Let me say that again. The power of God will not be shared with persecutors, pretenders, or power grabbers. And he threatens death to those who seek to manipulate him. Yet, God extends mercy to the persecutor, which we'll see next week in Saul. He extends mercy to the pretender and the power grabber. Right here we see with Simon. And he also extends mercy to the outcast, which brings in the eunuch. You see, after the apostles affirm the Samaritans as believers at their version of Pentecost, they head back to Jerusalem where they're called to be. But the Lord has a different plan for Philip, a divinely arranged encounter with a eunuch from Ethiopia. God has already moved his Acts 1-8 mission out of Judea and into Samaria. But there's another group of people that have been overlooked, so much more than the Samaritans ever were, the outcasts. This eunuch had a lot of descriptors in front of his non-existent name. He was the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia. He was a court official. He was a God-fearer. He was on his way to Jerusalem to worship, so we know that much. And he was rich enough to own his own scroll of Isaiah. I don't know if you know the, the significance of that, but, you know, this scroll right here wasn't very expensive. But scroll of Isaiah, pretty expensive. And he's just chilling in there with his, with ch- in his chariot with it. And as we read in verse 26, it was the Lord who arranged this encounter. But one detail that keeps getting repeated over and over in this passage, five times in fact, is that he's a eunuch. We call him the Ethiopian eunuch. And yeah, it's important that he's from Ethiopia, but that's only mentioned twice. The important part here is that this man is a eunuch. In order for us to truly see the weight of Philip meeting with a eunuch, we need to go back to our Old Testament for a moment. I'm warning you here, as I go through this passage in Deuteronomy, the ESV doesn't mince words, but remember that we are reading the word of God here. Deuteronomy 21.1 says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. The author then goes on in Deuteronomy to talk about everyone who is excluded from the assembly of God in Israel. Everyone who is excluded from the presence of God so to speak. This specific verse says that the eunuch has no place in the kingdom of God, at least not yet. And there's a promise for the eunuch a little bit later in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, very shortly after the portion that we read in this section of Acts. And it's no mistake. As Philip and the eunuch were looking together in his chariot at Isaiah, think of Isaiah chapter 56. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, 
I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Just as we saw the restoration of the divided kingdom of Israel and the conversion of Samaria, we see the restoration to, of the outcast to God's presence in his kingdom right here in the story of the eunuch. Let's read verses 35 or 32 to 35 here. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Peter opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. How could a eunuch from Ethiopia be restored to the presence of God? How could Samaritans who followed the demonic forces of magic and were held captive by this man named Simon doing magic in front of them be restored to the presence of God? Jesus. Jesus is the one who restores Samaria back to the people of God. Jesus is the one who restores the outcast, the eunuch, to fellowship with God. Jesus is the one whom the scriptures scream about when it is said that he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. His life was taken away from this earth and in his humility, he brought the outcast back in and the people of Samaria back to the fold of God. What, the eunuchs, what was the eunuch's response to Philip? Baptism and joy. Simon the magician, the pretender, the power grabber, the half-believer had no joy in Jesus. But what we see here with the eunuch is an eager follower of Jesus, ready to follow and walk forward in joyful obedience to the command of God and to be baptized. He didn't seek to buy power. He didn't seek his fair share of what the Holy Spirit had owed him. He was rejoicing at being brought into the presence of God, an outcast brought in and restored. After Philip baptized the eunuch, the eunuch didn't invite Philip back to ancient Ethiopia to evangelize and disciple the people in his country. Maybe he could have if he had the chance, but God had work for Philip to do elsewhere. Back where? In Samaria, along the coast. We're told that the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. That the spirit had Philip go back along the coast to preach to Samaria. If you thought the divinely arranged encounter with the eunuch from, the Ethiopia, uh, from Ethiopia was the beginning of the ministry to the Gentiles, you're a little early. Really, the focus here is not on the fact that this man from Ethiopia is beginning the ministry to the Gentiles, but the focus here is on the outcasts being brought in, being brought to the fold of God. And we'll see the Gentile version of the Pentecost a few weeks from now. So, with all this in mind, Let's take a minute to breathe. We've looked at this text in Acts 8. We've connected it to the Old Testament promises, and we've seen the apostles and Philip preach the good news across Samaria. So we come to ask, 
Who cares? Why is this relevant? Why should you and I care about this dude who's a sorcerer and a pretender named Simon and some eunuch from Ethiopia? Here's two reasons why I think you should care. If you're taking notes, here it is. One, God is all powerful so we can trust his good plan. God is all powerful so we can trust his good plan. And the second is this. God delivers and restores his people according to his promises. God delivers and restores his people according to his promises. I'll say those two one more time. Number one, God is all powerful so we can trust in his good plan. And number two, God delivers and restores his people according to his promises. So number one, God's all powerful. Even when persecution seems to thwart his plan. Acts 8 starts with the statement that Saul approved of Stephen the martyr's death. And that Saul then went on to persecute the church. This caused the church to what? To scatter. And that is the very means by which God spread the message of the good news of Jesus was through persecution. Oh, and then he radically saves the guy who was persecuting him. It's all in his plan. God is all powerful so we can trust in his good plan when you would rather take control to bring about what you think is good. Take into account that you've never had control in the first place. The illusion that you have control over the slightest of circumstances is as real as Simon the magician's belief. Simon thought he can control the Samaritans by his display of puny power and show of sorcery. But when Philip comes in the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus, Simon's power evaporates as the Samaritans joyfully believe and are baptized. Just like Simon, our control is non-existent. Your control is non-existent. And God's sovereignty is not for sale. God is all-powerful and we can trust in his good plan when the world and its spirits seem to be in power. I don't want us as 21st, Western, 21st century Western people to forget the aspect of spiritual warfare here. We're not just talking about God versus the secularists, all right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about real demonic forces in the world. And yes, may it may, while it may not look the same as what we see here in Acts, and why it may not look the same place to place, this is still a large reality that we live with today. But be encouraged by the fact that Jesus has resurrected and death has been conquered. See, in Genesis 3, God promised that his Messiah would crush the head of the serpent. Or in other words, that Jesus would deliver a curb stomp to the powers and spirits of this world. The resurrection of Jesus is this death blow to Satan and the demonic forces that Simon the pretender thought he had control over. So point two, God delivers and restores his people according to his promises. So you believe that he is with us. Jesus said that we would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in chapter one. The Holy Spirit is the very presence of God just as he 
promised. Acts 2 and 8 gives us the evidence that God delivers on his promises. At Pentecost in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit falls on the people of God. And here, in Samaria's version of the Pentecost, the same thing here happens. We see the Holy Spirit is given to God's people. Another thing I want you to see is God delivers and restores his people according to his promises. So look to Jesus in the scriptures. Everything points to our deliverer, Jesus, who restores all of God's people from the cut-off people to Samaria, to the outcast eunuch. Just as Philip pointed to Jesus in the scriptures, so we should also see him and his deliverance in the Bible. So look to Jesus, the persecuted, suffering servant here in Isaiah 53. He was betrayed by a pretender like Simon for money. He was led to the slaughter with his mouth shut on the way to the cross. He was unjustly killed and he humbled himself all the way to when his life was taken away from this earth. If anyone is going to deliver us and restore us to God, it's going to be King Jesus. He has all power and he is the ultimate embodiment of the goodness of God. So how could you not trust in his plan and his promises? You can believe that just as sure as he was delivered from death in the resurrection, so you will be in repentance. And that's the call. If you haven't noticed, there's a big difference between a lot of um, the things going on in this passage. We see Saul who persecutes the church and later we see that he repents, right? We see um, evidences of the Samaritans and the eunuch. We see evidences of their repentance and the fact that they go forward in baptism. But Simon is rebuked and we don't see repentance from him. I'm not saying that he didn't repent, but Luke wants us to see that something's going on there. And if like Simon, you are a pretender, God gives you the opportunity to repent. If like the eunuch and so many Samaritans you believe, rejoice. God is with you and because his presence cannot be bought, there is nothing that you can do to forfeit or sell his gift of the Holy Spirit. You didn't buy your salvation, so you can't sell it. What a great promise and reminder that is. Believe the promises of God that he has delivered all of us outcasts, all of us who were cut off and far off from him, from the family of God. We are now in God's presence by the power of King Jesus.